Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing apocalypses, disaster response, and why we're so fascinated with the end of the world. Hello and welcome to episode three, Apocalypse Sometime, maybe next Tuesday. I'm Alex and my apocalypse seed is flax because fabric and paper. I'm Freya and I'm choosing sweet wormwood, which has anti-malarial properties. And I'm Macy and I would choose hazelnut because it comes with both protein and weavable branches. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And I guess we're taking up horticulture this week? Fear not, we're going to explain what that's all about, because today we're talking about apocalypses. But first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? Well, I just finished rereading one of my favorite Georgette Heyer novels, Frederica, and I have just cracked open a very thematically appropriate book for this week. Uh, it's a book called Lotus Blue by Kat Sparks, who's an Australian writer, and it's a climate change apocalypse story that has, I guess, a sort of Mad Max-ish flavor in that it's about a desert and nomadic groups of people who travel and live in the desert and sentient machinery and a whole lot of other things I haven't gotten up to yet, but it seems promising. Ooh, sentient machinery does sound fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting up to that. (laughs) I just got started with a YA book that I've really been looking forward to that actually came out on my birthday. It's called The Bells, and it's a book kind of in dystopian kind of New Orleans setting where the main character has magic that lets herself uh, manipulate the physical appearance of others and the whole society is kind of obsessed with beauty. It's almost like a fantasy take on plastic surgery mania. It's pretty cool. Oh, interesting. And also, speaking of sentient machinery, I've been binge-watching Person of Interest because I've never seen that show before, and I've recently discovered that it is the best show in the entire world. The only thing that I've been reading this week is Person of Interest fanfiction. I am (laughs) deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole, folks. So if you have really good Person of Interest fanfiction, Rex, please send them to me on Twitter. I would love to hear them. Please just very carefully send them only to Alex, because I do not need to fall down that hole a second time. Just send them to Alex, not to me. So before we kind of dig into this episode, I wanted to check in with you two and make sure we're all talking about the same thing. So when I say apocalypse, what do you think of? What is an apocalypse to you? I think the important thing when you're thinking about apocalypse in the context of fiction is that the end of the world means whatever it means to the characters that you're seeing it through. So it's the end of the world as they know it, or their world. And when I was thinking about how to answer this, I actually started thinking about the very cavalier attitude that, for example, the Star Wars universe has to destroying planets. Mm, yes. And if you think of it from the point of view of the the point of view characters, I mean, in the original series, Leia seems her entire home planet be destroyed. But to her, that's not the apocalypse. Obviously, it's a very traumatic event, and everyone she knows is died. But because for her, the world and the scale of her adventures is the galaxy or the universe, that's not an apocalyptic event. It's just a tragedy. Whereas to somebody, I guess not on the planet, given that the planet is now smithereens, but to somebody maybe on the moon or somebody where you've got a very close relationship to a world that's been destroyed, that would be an apocalyptic story. So I think it's it's a, it's the end of the world as you know it, whatever that means to the character involved. And in the kind of fiction that we're looking at, I suppose it's either the end of life or a severe reduction in life or just some kind of really dramatic change to society as we know it on the world. I feel like it's almost the end of a way of life. Yes, because I, I know in I know in the medieval times there are two historical events, quote unquote events, that they sort of viewed as apocalypses. And one of those was the Black Death, which ha- has many of the hallmarks of apocalypse narratives that we know today, where you have enormous loss of life, you have dramatic social changes that occur in the wake of that event, and you have a complete sort of revolution of the way that people think of themselves and their communities in the wake of that. And the other event was the invasion of the Mongols and the northern, quote unquote, barbarian tribes that swept through Rome and basically sacked the Roman Empire, because that 
they were people from far away with wildly different technology. And it must have been very much like how we picture alien invasions today. Yeah, and both of those, I think, are still very much present in apocalypse narratives. The idea of external invasion being the driving force of the apocalypse or a plague narrative. So there's obviously plague narratives are immensely popular and the idea of some kind of uh, virulent organism being the cause of the apocalypse is one of the most common things that we see in this in this genre. Right, whether it's like a sickness or the zombie apocalypse. And then, of course, there's religious apocalypses as well, where it's like a supernatural thing that happens. Although I don't, do you think that you would categorize that with plague or with external like kind of war invasion? I suppose it depends. I think it depends a lot. And I think those probably aren't the only two because you can also have the kind of collapse of a society under its own weight. Yes. Right? Yes. So we're talking about like you could see the, the Russian Revolution being almost a death of a way of life or the French Revolution, right? The idea of a society causing its own downfall is obviously, again, a common cause because if you think about as a as a genre that's becoming more popular, I think about things like climate change dystopia, which or climate change apocalypse, which is saying mm. there's no external force here. It's not some virus that's being developed. It is a natural extrapolation of a trend that someone is seeing, and it's almost a, a warning, and it's using the idea of an apocalyptic narrative to say this is where we could end up. I think that's one of the, one of the reasons that people write and, and explore apocalypses is because it can be a very interesting way of saying, well, let's take a current trend to a very dramatic conclusion. And I think we had a few pieces of fiction that we wanted to kind of focus in on this episode. And I know the first one was a little bit controversial, because this is a book that I really enjoy, but I think that you two found a little bit different. So do we want to talk a little bit about the book of the unnamed midwife by Meg Ellison? Yes. And before we go on any further, so as you mentioned, yes, I believe that Freya and I did not enjoy it as much as as you did. But something that I think is really, really important is that we can have constructive and interesting conversations about books that we dislike while saying, yes, I disliked this book. Because disliking a book often says more about us than it does about the book or the quality of the book or any other factor. It's it's things that are internal to us because we like a book when it is nourishing a particular specific hunger of ours. And we dislike a book when it is in contention with the hunger in our hearts. So I think Freya and I have a hunger in our hearts that this book was not aiming to nourish. And that is totally fine. The book is not obligated to do the thing that we want it to do it's doing its own thing and that's great and it does it really really well but it's not the thing that i wanted it to do freya what are your thoughts on this well i thought that it might be worth mentioning what the book is at some oh, point well i mean you did you mentioned you mentioned it you said that it's the book of the unnamed midwife yeah how about you give us a bit of a, a brief spiel about the book then yeah since you liked it <laughs> <laughs> seems a bit fairer, right? So I guess the reason that I really thought this was an interesting one for this episode to talk about is this is a book that takes kind of the classic tropes of a plague apocalypse, so something like the movie 28 Days Later, and then extrapolates that to tackle issues along the same vein as The Handmaid's Tale, right? So it's a book that says if the end of the world happens and there are far fewer people around, and it has affected how women give birth and reproduce. How do you have a character trying to make their way in this world and trying to help others in this world with all of these constraints and all of these terrible things happening? And how do you still find hope and the will to go on? So that's kind of how I read it, at least. I think it is a book about that. I would say, if you ask me whether I enjoyed reading the book, I would say no. Do I think it is a well-written, well-constructed piece of fiction, then yes, I don't think it is a bad book. Uh, I just did not enjoy the experience of reading it really at all. And most of that was because of what it chose to focus on. I had, I had a few quibbles with some of the way that it was structured and some of the, the way that the framing narrative became quite inconsistent later on. But that's more to do with just me reading it with a, a writing eye and finding things to pick out. But I didn't enjoy it. And I think it's because I am a little weary of that whole idea of reproduction and healthy reproduction as the thing to focus on. You're right in that even though Handmaid's Tale is dystopian rather than apocalyptic, I, I would 
describe it. It has that same focus on women and as reproductive units, I suppose, um, and Children of Men, which was a, a short book first and then was a movie, has that same obsession with pregnancy and women reproducing um, and even some of the other things like Mad Max, Fury Road with its um, all these things to do with this idea of radiation yes. and contamination and mutation, the idea of everybody is obsessed with the birth of a healthy child. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, religious significance, <laughs> there's just this overwhelming obsession with, you know, babies and the future and healthy women giving birth to healthy babies. And I can understand why it's a very interesting mm-hmm. aspect to look at and why it's an interesting angle to take. But at a certain point, especially if you're coming, it just gets a little bit tired. Yeah. If you're, it's a little bit tired if you're, most of your time you spend thinking about and arguing for and wanting to experience stories about women as things other than reproductive units. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think that that was kind of what struck me about it too, is that I'm so tired of stories about women being powerless. And also, I think I had an objection as well, which is that the all of the men in this story are violent, rapist assholes who treat the few women that manage to survive as property. And like men aren't stupid, you know, men are human beings who can, who do actually amazingly have the ability to judge consequences. Maybe it's just that I think that the best of people and that I think that most people are inherently good, but I have trouble seeing the depiction of masculinity in that book as something that I found plausible. Like it, it is immensely cynical about what men will become. Yes, in such a situation. Yes, it is. With this idea, this idea that they're just sex crazed, and that suddenly the idea of having sex with women, even in a society where everyone knows that childbirth is likely to end in death. Even then, the the whole drive of heterosexual men will become this ugly, violent thing that's the basis for the black trade economy. That, to me, felt so cynical as to be nasty, and that's why I didn't enjoy reading it. Yeah. So I think we might be getting a little bit deep on some aspects of this book that aren't really necessarily the focus of this episode. That's fair. That's fair. Real quick, though, just to balance us out, because balance is important, Macy, tell us everything that you liked about the book. Let's see. The thing I liked about this book was that it did take a main character with a focus on actual reproductive control. And the entire goal of this character was to preserve the ability to choose. So that's something that you don't actually see that much in as a focus of an entire book in fantasy or in, in fiction in general. I mean, I don't read much literary fiction, so I can't say if it's more of a focus there. And I did find that quite compelling. I also find that, to me, a book about reproduction reads a little bit differently when it is told from a woman's point of view. Like, a lot was made out of Mad Max Fury Road not being a focus of the male gaze, but it was still a male main character. And there were no narrative characters who were possessing these women in this book. I don't think I agree that every single man was depicted in that way. Well, not every single man, but the depiction, the general depiction of masculinity. There were there were exceptions. There were good men in this book. There were several good men in this book. And most of the book is from the perspective of this one particular character. And we'll be talking uh, in our next episode, uh, just to give the game away a little bit early, but we are going to be talking about unreliable narrators. And I think that her personal opinions and her perceptions of things definitely colored the narrative. Right. And I think that's why I kind of wanted this book as one of the ones that we talked about in this episode, is I think this is a book that focuses on the big question of apocalyptic fiction, which is, what would you do? So maybe let's move on to some of the other topics and see how they handle that question. Macy, you mentioned a particular piece of fan fiction that you wanted to talk about, and I I went and read it, and I think it actually is a really good one to talk about next in terms of the contrast with the book of The Unnamed Midwife. Did you end up reading this, Alex? Oh, Sailor's Delight? Yes. Uh, No, I did not. Oh, wait, so why don't you talk about that a little bit, Freya? (laughs) Okay, so Sailor's Delight is by Gingerly, and it is a Buffy and Stargate Atlantis crossover. 
because I love obscure crossovers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love obscure crossovers. That's one of the great joys of fan fiction. Right. And I particularly liked this as a piece of apocalyptic fan fiction because it did what a lot of apocalyptic pieces of fiction does in that it may it focuses on the beginning of the apocalypse. And Book of the Unmade, Unmade Midwife does exactly the same thing. It talks about the adjustment of someone to from the before to the after in a way that makes it almost a portal fantasy because, hmm. because there's always this, there's something there that says, you know, you, you sleep through the apocalypse or you're in a coma or you're in an underground bunker or, you know, you were unwell with the virus and you wake up in a new world and you have to discover the rules of this world and, and so the audience or the readers get to discover the world with you. And it, so it often has the structure of a portal fantasy in that sense. That's really interesting. With the caveat that there is no way of going home. That's a really, really excellent point, Freya. And one of the things that I really liked about Sailor's Delight is that the point of view character is Dawn Summers, uh, Buffy's little sister. And I, I was coming to it thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's a, that same old thing where you can't go home. But because of the character that is chosen and because of the genre savviness of that particular character, she doesn't approach it that way. Her immediate approach is, oh, oh, it's an apocalypse. We've had those before. And she starts thinking about whether it's a pocket dimension or whether that something, you know, something has happened in terms that she can easily reverse. So from her point of view, she's been transported into a new world that she thinks she can get home from. And it takes her a, a little while to adjust to the idea that everyone is actually dead and gone and she can't go home again in a quite, in a slightly different way that it would people like the unnamed midwife in her book where she is adjusting obviously to a very traumatic shift but she's not coming at it from the point of view of someone who is a, a genre character in a canon where apocalypses are just something that happen and have to be averted you know once every season so i thought that was great that was something that fan fiction can do that uh, a general piece of, of fiction can't and I thought it was interesting, too, because we had two characters in this piece of fic, and it's not too long. It's about a novella length. And the other character is from a science fiction universe, whereas Dawn is from the Buffy kind of fantasy universe. And so the, the character from the science fiction universe, and we're going to spoil this horribly, I apologize. Uh, spoiler warnings for everything we discuss on this show, ever. Just preemptively. Her first approach is, can I get through the Stargate? Can I get to another planet? This world is gone. Draw a line through it. Let's go to the next one. I liked that almost. It was a collision, but it was a complementary collision because the cause of of the apocalypse in this particular case was something more science fictional than fantasy. It was a, a comet, I think it was, that, that turned everybody into red dust, which is a very sort of science fiction kind of apocalypse. Whereas Dawn was coming at it from the point of view of fantasy, which is why she couldn't. it took her a longer time to adjust Whereas Jeannie, the other character, had clearly, the whole point was that she had been warned, she sort of knew something bad was coming, and so she didn't have to have that adjustment because she knew there was a science fiction apocalypse coming and she knew there was a science fiction solution, which is what they're trying to find in the story. But I think this is actually a really good parallel to the other big piece of apocalypse fiction that we wanted to talk about, which is the N.K. Jemisin Broken Earth trilogy. And I think there's kind of a big difference between characters who expect an apocalypse and characters who don't. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty un... Like, most of the time, you don't expect the apocalypse. <laughs> that's, that's a, that is a fair statement. I feel like that's a fair statement. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition or the apocalypse. I was waiting for that. I was like, Alex is going to mention the Spanish Inquisition. I was very carefully giving you an opportunity. You're welcome. <laughs> But in the fifth season, and Alex, I know you haven't read this? Correct, I have not. Why? I'm way behind on things. I'm way behind on all the things. We'll get you, it's fine. We will. We'll inflict this on you. In the fifth season, uh, part of the world building is that this is a world shaken by tectonic events. And we find out why later on in the trilogy, but specifically, the people of this world expect apocalypses. They call them the fifth season, and they come along a small one maybe every couple dozen years and a giant possibly world-ending one every few hundred years. And I find that really cool. And I really like about that series that there is this through thread of uh, people who are trying to record and keep track of what has happened. And so all through the books you get these little snatches of 
archival information almost that is telling you about previous seasons and how those took place. And the whole point of it is that humanity has to try and hold on to the knowledge that has come from the previous seasons and how difficult it is to have any kind of legacy and any kind of, uh, I guess, longitudinal knowledge as a human, as the human race, when everything keeps getting destroyed on a regular basis. And so the plans that people have for the apocalypse keep changing a little bit because they're trying to learn from what's happened last time and and it does get quite cynical and that you know this is what we know works but that whole idea of trying to hold on to knowledge and hold on to stories and hold on to whoops sorry just completely lost my train of thought (laughs) hold on to stories and hold on to traditions right yeah and that's a really important part of the books what did you think about that macy I mean, the thing that I was actually thinking of that I think Alex would adore is the way that their society is constructed in these communities. It's not really agrarian. It's late Middle Ages, early Renaissance in most technology level, I'd say. But they have this concept of comms, which is like almost a communist kind of community where every resource gets pooled and every person has an assigned role. And during, when it's not a season, they carry about their lives like we do but when a season happens everybody knows what to do they've been born and named and trained for a specific purpose and they pull together Hmm. and that has another thing to do with the the role of the individual in the apocalypse because in the fifth season the role of the individual is really clearly defined and it's almost harking back to what we were talking about last week with sorting people into categories of use where you have As you said, Macy, that the comms say, okay, this person is a stone worker, therefore they can stay because that's useful. This person is a medic, they can stay because we need medics. And even that touches on the idea of having people whose job is to be breeders to carry on the human race. And that is a defined caste. But interestingly, it has men as breeders as well. And I like that because it does, it gives you a slightly broader point of view of the, the role of the individual and it does focus obviously on individual characters but it did make me think about in in unnamed midwife i think one of the things i did really enjoy about that book was the fact that as you say the protagonist is doing a job and that's why it's in the title that she is a midwife and that she is attempting to do a job that is no longer a job there is no role for her there so she can't deliver babies anymore because that's not happening but so she's thinking how can i best use my skills and how can i best use my knowledge to for the greater good. And I think that that's an interesting thing about apocalypse fiction, because we've talked about the genre stuff, and there's a whole sort of genre of apocalypse fiction that's zombie fiction and virus fiction that gets produced at great volume, right? And a lot of it's very warlike. A lot of it's people kind of fighting and competing. I'm thinking of a book I have upstairs, School's Out Forever, that's just this pulp book about, it's a volume of three books about schoolboys in a viral apocalypse, and they all go and they find guns and they start fighting and there's cannibalism, and I'm like, why? Oh, so this is reminding me of Lord of the Flies. Yes. Yeah, because that it too, I think, can be kind of classified as apocalypse fiction because this plane of schoolboys gets crashed on an island and they have to like figure out how to be people when their whole world has been upended. And it ends in violence and cannibalism and it's terrible. It's so... and. I didn't like that book either because because it's not about community. Well, that's what I was going to say. That was what I was trying to, to loop back around to, which I forgot halfway through because I got excited about cannibalism. <laughs> As you do. Oh, dear. Talk about pull quotes. Anyway, I got excited about cannibalism. But my point was that the communities and the type of fiction that I think the three of us love, the hope punk idea is that people stop trying to optimize for themselves as individuals and start thinking communally. And I think I had a quote here. There's this book called A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit that I was reading a little while back. And it has this quote about what goes on in many disasters, wherein how you behave depends on whether you think your neighbors or fellow citizens are a greater threat than the havoc wrought by a disaster or a greater good than the property in the houses and stores around you. So who do you prioritize? Do you prioritize the people, your neighbors, your community, or the things and the social order? Yes. I think the core thing that I object to in a lot of this apocalypse literature is that it posits that people will stop being people because humans are tribal animals. Humans just 
like being in tribes. We talked about this last week. It's in, it's hard coded into our DNA. And in the apocalypse, sure, for the first week or two, I would imagine that there would be marauding bands of, God, no, I can't even say that. I can't even say in the first week or two, because look at how people are dealing with natural disasters. Look at how people deal with hurricanes. Like, yeah, you get a couple instances of looters, but you get so many more instances of people helping each other and banding together and saving each other's lives. And that is so much more powerful than the alternative, you know? It does depend whether you're coming at this from a cynical point of view or not. Yeah. Because obviously that's a very non-cynical point of view. And I think one of the reasons that people quite like or at least there has been a proliferation of zombie apocalypses, is that it creates very clear tribes. For people who want to read about battles and how would I survive, it's quite easy when one of the tribes is you know, the walking undead and yeah. it doesn't really matter. You can sort of, Everyone else can band together against them. But once you remove that from the equation, you have people, ordinary people against ordinary people, and it becomes messier. And I think it becomes, there's almost phases, right? So there's, we talked a little bit about the kind of portal fantasy of you just woke up and your world is over. And that's kind of one phase. And the kind of shock and horror and the earthquake just happened and you're helping people around you. And then there's things like Mad Max Fury Road, which is, I would almost actually say this is post-apocalyptic, not apocalypse. I would draw a line between those two. And the thing that you made me think of, Alex, when you were talking about tribes and the warring bands was a conversation between Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone at 4th Street last year about how societies go to war over misunderstanding and that kind of the conflicts tend to arise not really out of greed most of the time, but out of confusion. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that applies. Well, I think if you look at the, the obviously the history of conflict in the world, one of the things that people often think about when they're looking, especially at post-apocalyptic things, is that conflicts can arise out of scarcity of resource. Mm. And especially all of those reproductive ones are thinking about scarcity of resource in terms of women who can give birth or even just women to have sex with. And Mad Max Fury Road is looking at it from the point of view of, again, an almost climate change perspective where the scarcity of resource is essentially water and whoever controls the resource and the attitude that everybody has towards that. So both water and uh, healthy children, I guess, that shapes that world. That is how it's made constructs the power dynamics and the roles of people is all around that inequality of access to resources and the way that the people who have control use that power over other people. So I think there's less confusion in that sense and sort of saying this has been a very common source of conflict and it will continue to be so because you can look at almost any type of post-apocalyptic world and say here is where the scarcity is going to be and here's where the inequality is going to be. Well, I think that depends on whether there is scarcity if you manage to get stabilised into an agrarian situation, right? Yes, it depends dramatically on the world that you're constructing, because it's always a fictional construct of somebody's, and it depends, are you making a point about power and scarcity and resources and what happens when the water runs out, or are you making a point about communality and agrarian resource sharing? There's always the authors. The author has to decide what kind of story that they want to tell. And I think that was something else we wanted to talk about, right? Is that you kind of get to pick where you focus the camera in these apocalypse narratives. Yes. And Alex, I expect you might have some thoughts about about this. <sighs> Ask me some questions and I will have thoughts for you. Sure. So if you presuppose a particular type of apocalypse, let's say, how much leeway does the author have to choose the type of story they tell or does it get kind of dictated can can you tell another zombie apocalypse will it be different or is it going to be the same so if i write one zombie apocalypse novel and then i write another zombie apocalypse novel are they necessarily going to be the same kind of thing because of my personal beliefs is that what you're asking well not really it's more will they be the same as the other zombie apocalypse novels that already exist out there like what point of view do you want to bring to that story? Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, I see what you're asking now. So real quick question. Before I, I answer that question, I have a question for either of you. <laughs> and it's a very quick one. Have either of you written apocalypse fiction before? Yes. You have? Freya? Uh, yes, fan fiction. Okay, cool. Ooh! I, I will talk about that more later if you like. Sure, sure. Uh, we can we can link to it in the in the show description. <laughs> 
Sure. <laughs> in 2012, I self-published a, my first book, which is apocalypse fiction. And I think that to answer your question, Macy, I approached it in a dramatically different way than I see people generally approach apocalypse fiction. Because I mm-hmm. was hitting hardcore on community building aspects of it. Like, that's what I believe would happen is that I am surrounded by people to whom community matters a lot and who are inherently community builders. And I have a hard time thinking that humans would not be adaptable and would inflict their own ideas of normal on an unnormal world as quickly as possible, if that makes sense. Hmm. Did that answer your question at all? I have no idea. <laughs> I, want to, I want to stick with this, Macy. Tell me about the post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic story that you've written and why you made the authorial choices regards point of view and what you focused on. Oh my gosh. Well, this was a long time ago. So that was the year that I decided to write superhero story a superhero story because it seemed cool. Look, I'm about to talk about Naruto fan fiction from 10 years ago, so you've got nothing <laughs> to keep talking. Oh my gosh. Freya just owned all of us. All the pressure just disappeared. What was I doing? Yes, I was writing a story about a viral outburst that had gone wrong because some character who had the power to survive any infection had been infected with everything at once and they had all mutated inside her and the heroes were on a quest to try to destroy the virus inside of all the people in the world before it could kill them so you know medically uh, exceptionally dubious just just a, a little bit it was a magical virus freya okay that's fine that's fine. I can suspend my disbelief. I was 19. Things like magical viruses. I'm not so sure that that aspect would be something I would want to write about today. I think the type of thing I would be more interested in writing about in an apocalyptic scenario today would be those communities. I think you've talked about this with me, Alex, before. The the ship at sea, right? Yes. The The isolated community that there is no recourse. These are the only people that you're going to see for the rest of your life, apart from the kids that you have. What do you become as a group and how do you pull together and what shape does that take? There is actually a TV show about that, isn't there? Called The Last Ship. Huh. I haven't watched it, but I, I think it's about it's about yeah, a viral pandemic wiping out most of the world's population and it's about the crew of a Navy ship that is not affected because they're so far away and so isolated at the time that it happens. I don't know anything else about it apart from that, but there is one that takes that idea of a, a ship quite literally. So I wonder if that's part of the draw of an apocalyptic scenario is you get to kind of pick a very small band of characters and isolate them and put them under stress and see what happens for an author I mean I would absolutely agree I think for me at least especially as a writer the uh, the whole point of it is about characters so sometimes it's about the why and the how and how did the world get to this point but for me it's more about the nature of the individuals that you're looking at exactly you're putting them in a pressure cooker and so I will now talk about the narrative fan fiction that I wrote at the age of 21, so... Oh, God. You know, no shame whatsoever. Freya, at the age of 21? Well, as a fanfiction writer, and obviously as a fanfiction reader, I think this is one of the things that we enjoy. The appeal of writing fanfiction when you're bringing in these kind of external tropes like apocalypses is that you've got those characters that everybody knows. So again, you're leaning on that shared canon, the shared love of these characters, and you're taking the beloved characters and putting them in these extreme situations mm-hmm. and seeing, okay, so what would happen? And in the case of this particular fic called Solfege, it's about a certain group of the core characters. And the reason I wanted to write it is because the role of these characters in the canon is as protectors. So they're trained as warriors to protect their village. And I wanted to write it partly because it's about what happens when suddenly that role that you have, you know, what what is your village when the population is reduced and in danger and spread everywhere? And what do you do with yourself? Do you keep traveling? Do you put down roots? How do you best protect people? And is that still your priority? And the other half of it was that because it is a canon that's about essentially magical ninjas, but each of them have a different power that's based in the elements. So there's things to do with fire and lightning and water and things like that. And I wanted to invent an apocalypse where those elemental ideas and these elemental magics were what the danger was as well. So... 
So my, my like little catchphrase for it was when the land turns against you, what do you do? Because it's about these people who have learned to control the elements and to control their own particular powers, trying to cope with those things being made twisted and large and turned against them. And it's pretty much just a series of character vignettes looking at what would happen to each of these individuals based on their personalities, their personal bonds and relationships within the other people, and what they might choose to do. And that, to me, is one of the fun things about writing apocalypses, both for fan fiction and original, is that you can really dig hard into character because you're putting them in such a desperate situation. Yeah, I agree. Like, you take a little group of people and you put them under immense stress and you find out who they those people are. And the great thing is, and you can choose to make it such that the stress is, like you were saying earlier, Freya, about resources rather than about people behaving badly, right? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the you know, man's inhumanity to man, to put it that way. It can be about putting them in the situation that would be the most testing for that individual. You can do anything. You're the writer. You can decide exactly what you want to do. You can say, how am I going to most punish this person and what would be the most interesting situation from a narrative point of view? Let's do that. So related to Freya's point about what do you do and who are you when your community has been reduced and what is your job in, in that situation? There's an interesting bullet point uh, on our little planning document here, which I am dying for Macy to tell us about. Yes, that is an intriguing dot point. Things I learned in earthquake response management training. Macy, please tell us everything about that. <laughs> okay, so I work um, in a pretty big office complex. We have like five offices in Seattle. And um, I don't know if you all know much about the kind of earthquake situation on the west coast of the US. Little bit, little bit. So I didn't until I moved here. I'm English. <laughs> we are not really up with earthquakes. We're more about floods, you know, rogue sheep, things like that. So apparently the, the fault zone here is in California, you can go up to a 7.5 on the, on the Richter scale. In Seattle, with the Cascadia subduction zone, you can get up to like 9.6. <gasps> yeah, so it's like, goodbye, Seattle. So my company decided that they wanted to kind of staff up an emergency response group, and they gave us 16 hours of crisis response training for a small group of us who chose to be on that team. And I did, because I'm a writer. Yeah, I mean, like, that sounds like an amazing opportunity to get some really good material. Right, and I will hopefully segue this over to Freya in a little bit to talk more about the medical side of things, but we learned a bunch about trauma triage, and we learned a bunch about building assessment and we also just learned a bunch about managing people. And one of the statistics they told us in a real-life disaster, like the earthquake in Mexico, where our company recently had a building damaged, roughly 10% of people will stick around to help. Just They just will. Which I thought was really cool, right? Yeah, that's amazingly cool. Because 10% is a high number. Yes, yes. You wouldn't expect it to be that many. Like, you expect, like, real heroes to be, like, maybe one out of a hundred. And the fact that it's 10 people out of 100, I don't even know if you need more than that because you need people to get out of the way. Yeah, you really don't. I mean, what they basically taught us how to do is they taught a kind of command structure. So yeah. you yeah. basically, you just tell people what to do and they will do it in absence of anything else. Most people, by their personality, will do what they are told if somebody seems competent and has a shiny yellow vest. I have an amazing <laughs> fiction rec about that point, except oh. it's, a, it's a song Instead of <laughs> fiction, yeah. It's a song by Leslie Fish, and it's called The Day It Fell Apart. So huh. we'll link to it in the show notes. It's an amazing song, and I love it a lot. And it is about, mm. like, this terrible, terrible event happening, and one person going, okay, I'm in charge now. Here's what we do. Right, because yeah. that's all you need. It honestly is. Like, I want more stories about the school teacher leading the apocalypse or the firefighter, who, the people who have training in command who aren't the military leaders, because a lot of people do actually have training in command. They just wouldn't necessarily think about it like that. Right. The story about the school teacher leading the apocalypse is Battlestar Galactica, by the way. <laughs> you are kind very... Kind of. Kind. Very I will argue she is not a school teacher. She is the Minister for Education. And by that point, she is a politician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought it was too. 
Yeah, it was just too good, too good an example to pass up. We hadn't thought about Battlestar Galactica as an apocalyptic fiction. So real quick before we turn it over to Freya to tell us about like medical things or whatever it was that you wanted to ask her about, a, a thing that you said in your sort of lead up to the point, Macy, was that oh, you're... Was that your English and like earthquakes aren't the sort of apocalypse that you know how to deal with? So you know floods and and rogue sheep, right? <laughs> okay, that was a, I was being a little bit facetious. I know I know it was a little bit facetious, but hear me out. Flooding is sort of is the sort of thing that you grew up knowing how to deal with, right? Yes, definitely. I grew up in a town that floods every three to five years. It's in the oxbow of a river, and it's expected. Cool. So I grew up in Florida, and so hurricanes are my kind of quote-unquote apocalyptic event. Like, I know how to deal with a hurricane. So when I went to college up in Missouri and they start talking about tornadoes, I'm like, oh, tornadoes, great, wait, you mean we don't have, like, two weeks to prepare for this thing? (laughs) We have, you mean we have, like, 10 to 15 minutes max to prepare for this thing? (sighs) And that was that was very hard for me to deal with. And I had to be specifically trained on what to do in the event of a tornado, even though like everyone around me had who had grown up in Missouri just sort of knew what to do. So want to know how many years it took be- since I moved to the west coast of the US until anybody told me what I was meant to be doing in an earthquake? How, how long? Five. Jesus. Yeah, because they all think that, oh, yeah, this is something you grew up with. You should just know. This is... <laughs> normal stuff (laughs) and like it was me being trained to be an earthquake response leader oh goodness was the first time i got told why you get under a desk not in a doorway oh gosh (laughs) i mean even i know that so freya uh growing up in in australia what bushfires that's what i thought yep yep absolutely if you think about the kind of apocalypse that you are prepared for for me it is absolutely bushfires especially because the city where i live has had one or two quite severe and significant bushfire events that have led to a lot of people losing their house, a few people dying. The house that I grew up in mostly in my city backed onto a nature reserve, which is a very dry Australian bush kind of nature reserve. And we always knew growing up that we were sort of on the front line of if a bushfire started and a spark got blown onto the hill, then our street at the very top of the hill was the one that was going to get affected. And so you do, you learn things like, you know, fill the bathtub with water. Here's what you do. If you're caught in your car, here's what you do. And, and so, and then living through the drought of Australia in the nineties, there was a change in my lifetime for the fire danger rating scales, which I don't know if you ever want to Google bushfire danger or fire danger rating scales, they used to go from, I think it was like low, moderate, high, very high, extreme. And now high is the second lowest rating. Oh, Jesus Christ. And so these are things that you will see by the side of the road saying fire danger rating today with a little arrow that can get moved. And it goes from low moderate, which is the lowest one, high, very high, severe, extreme, catastrophic. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, an, so an average fire danger rating in Australia in summer is basically severe because that's just that that's the kind of apocalypse that we are prepared for. That's- that's amazingly cool. Oh my god! See, most of my memories of hurricanes are extremely chill. Like, <laughs> I think when I was living there, like, we just didn't really have hurricanes hit us directly. We would just put up wood shutters over all our windows and stock up on water and expect to lose power for a couple days. My clearest memory of a hurricane is when a Hurricane Katrina was passing us by and we lost power for three days. And while the hurricane was going over, I was just sort of camped out under the dining room table with a kerosene lamp reading Interview with the Vampire for the first time. <laughs> and I mean, I think that that was an appropriate and timely way to read Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I remember driving back from my family's coast house because we saw on the news you know, there were some bushfires that I expected to reach the city. And my dad and I essentially got into the car that night and drove back home and spent a lot of time that night, like late into the night, clearing the gutters of the roof and, you know, prepping water and buckets in the hose just in case it did spread to that particular... And it didn't happen, luckily, but it was that idea of preparedness. And I think it's interesting because we don't tend to see that much in apocalyptic stories, do we? 
it tends to be too late. Right. We, we tend to see it when it's too late. And I guess the closest you really get are, oh, what was the the climate change one where the everything froze and the Queen's helicopter fell out of the sky? The day after tomorrow. Yes, that one with like the climate change scientist who was running around trying to convince everybody that they should metaphorically be cleaning the garbage out of their gutters, but they never get believed. Yeah. And I think because of a story, it wouldn't dwell on it because the story of the apocalypse is this is happening no matter what. What are you going to do afterwards? Whereas if you dwell too hard on here's how people have tried to prevent it, then it's just a very depressing story because it's you fighting off something that you're going to lose against in the end. I think, though, it's interesting because humans are really bad at keeping risks. Like, there's a lot of large risks and we can't keep them all in our minds at once and we can't make adequate protections for all of them because they feel too big, right? I am an earthquake response officer for my workplace and I don't have a backpack at home that's packed for an earthquake. I should. I know I should, but I don't. Freya, do you have a full trauma kit at home? No, I don't. I technically could have a doctor's bag. Cool. And I must admit, I had never thought about going to the trouble of having to have a doctor's bag in my car solely in the event of an apocalypse. (laughs) Given the amount of bother it would have to go through to keep the drugs updated when I don't actually do home visits or nursing home visits as part of my current work but it's a good thing to think about right and so we explore these in stories and the characters are never prepared in part because we aren't prepared and it doesn't feel realistic for them to be prepared maybe yes i think most people just go about their day-to-day lives and are like oh yeah i'll take care of that i should have that sort of like i should floss every day and i'll get around to it and then they don't i feel like it's kind of a nerdy hobby that I've witnessed in a lot of my friend groups, what would you do if zombies attacked or if there was a viral apocalypse? I was literally just about to ask you guys that question. (laughs) Yeah, right? But I had one friend give the super depressing answer that was, um, I'd rather not survive, actually, if that was happening. I think that's something that a lot of the fiction looks at as well. There's always a mention of once you get to the after, there are people who would rather not have survived and who might either passively or actively kill themselves because they don't want to live in the new world. But I don't know. I feel like people adapt and have more of a survival instinct than perhaps we give ourselves credit for. All right, Alex, you begin. (laughs) Uh, What would I do in the apocalypse? Yes. Okay. So the first month or so of the apocalypse is going to be crucial for me. If I can get past the first month, then I am fucking golden because I will find a survivor group and I will community build the shit out of them. And all of my skills are long term skills like, okay, we're all storytellers and storytelling is an incredibly valuable skill if you can if you can leverage it properly and if you know how valuable it is and can use it, but more practical hands-on skills. So I know how to do sewing. I know how to grow and process flax, which I mentioned as my apocalypse seed. So everything that I, like, if you guys can keep me alive for the first six months of the apocalypse, then I can keep you warm a year, two years, five years from now. Like, I can sew you clothes. I know a little bit about blacksmithing. I know how to make <laughs> candles. I know how to do beekeeping. I have a lot of, like, small, interesting, useful skills, but they're all kind of long-term projects rather than anything that's going to be super useful in the short term. But they are very useful. I was just imagining you turning up to some community and being like, hello, I'm a bard. I promise I'll be, <laughs> I promise I'll be useful to humanity in about four or five years when you're really looking for someone to tell the saga of how the apocalypse happened. But if you can then append that with also I sew clothing, you're fine. No, no, no. Like you're being silly about it, but keeping up morale is something that is incredibly important. Oh, I know. I just, I'm just trying to imagine like selling yourself that way. Whereas the things that I have is I have a lot of training in leadership and organization and delegation and all of that kind of stuff. And I also navigate like a boss and understand the shape of land and how to find water and how to make sure the water's potable and stuff like that. So I'd probably do reasonably well. I don't have a ton of practical skills other than that, but as long as I get enough people to forget that, I'm fine. 
Whereas you, Freya, are the Apocalypse oh my Prize. God. Freya is absolutely the Apocalypse Prize. Freya, oh my God, <laughs> Freya is not going to have any problems at all whatsoever. I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> See, you say that, and then I think about the kind of medicine that I've actually been practicing for the past five or so years. And honestly, a lot of it is very about keeping well people well when I have access to the resources of a well-off country's health system. Okay, but Freya, do you know how to stitch up a wound? Yes, but it's been a while. Well, okay. Beggars can't be fucking choosers in the apocalypse, Freya. No, I, I think you're absolutely right that in the event of the apocalypse, first of all, if it is an epidemic or a viral apocalypse of any kind, I am dead super early. Because all the sick people come to their GP first, and I'm yeah, just going to yeah. catch whatever's going around and die. So that's fine. So if it is any kind of medical-based apocalypse, I'm probably gone. Shit, that's a really good point, damn it. <laughs> Would you like to write a story about how in any kind of viral ep you know, epidemic, we're going to lose a lot of doctors and nurses really early? Because that's something to think about. That's fun. No. <laughs> but assuming it is a some kind of apocalypse where I survive then yes, I think I've got enough of it. Obviously, I've been to medical school, I've done terms in emergency, I've done a term in obstetrics, I've done enough of everything that I could probably improvise my way through anything. And you're absolutely right, beggars can't be choosers. Nobody's going There's to sue no me. There's no such thing as malpractice in the apocalypse. Hello everyone, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Well, that got a little off in the weeds, didn't it? I think these days, it's a little bit hard to talk about apocalypse fiction without picturing what you'd do yourself in that situation instead. One thing I do love, though, about apocalypse stories is that they show that even when everything goes terribly wrong, humans still keep fighting to make it through. And if that isn't hope punk, what is? We have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on March 15th, we'll be discussing unreliable narrators. Are they really all lying liars who lie? Or is there something else going on there? So if you have a friend who is into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. All our individual social media handles are listed on the show's about pages. We would love to hear from you. Questions? Comments? Apocalypse seed recommendations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And by the way, I love the way you've done your hair today. <laughs>